Our next guest is a postdoctoral researcher in environmental engineering at the University of Toronto, who published an article recently at theconversation.com entitled The Myth of Electric Cars, Why We Also Need to Focus on Buses and Trains. Alex Milovanov joins us now from Toronto with more on e-vehicles. Alex, thank you for joining us and good morning. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's great to have you with us. Now, here's the line in the here is the deal breaker, Alex. I read this and thought we got to talk to this guy. Let me just quote one sentence from the very early part of your article. It almost seems like owning an electric vehicle is a silver bullet in the fight against climate change. But it isn't. What we should also be focused on is whether anyone should use a private vehicle at all. Provocative stuff, Alex. Uh, <laughs> indeed. Indeed. Well, the idea being, of course, and why the uh, the article goes on to talk about focusing on buses and trains simply because they are capable of moving more people more rapidly. And the idea be here being that ultimately it's, it's about moving people as quickly and efficiently as possible. And the personal vehicle may or may not fit into that grid, right? Exactly. I think you said it right. Um, electric vehicles are part of the solution when we talk about our climate crisis. Um, they they indeed uh, rely on different technologies and diff- uh, on different fuel electricity that can be dec- decarbonized. But the problem is, if we take the picture right now of the economy we, we live in, uh, the electricity is not fully decarbonized. These electric vehicles rely on um, new technologies, new components, such as batteries that rely on lithium, manganese, cobalt, and that are very energy-intensive to be extracted, and batteries very energy-intensive to be produced. Good points. And so there is, a, uh, from a global perspective, electric vehicles are not zero-emission vehicles. That's really a term that I dislike. They help us tackle climate change. But they are not the only solution. And, and, and sometimes in some places, for example, in Alberta, it's way better to take a bus um, in terms of GHG emission reduction than to take an electric vehicle because they don't fully reduce the emissions compared to conventional vehicles because 90% of the electricity in Alberta comes from fossil fuel. Ah, I see. So again, it depends a lot on the jurisdiction as to how this model is going to play out. Exactly. And, and that's, that's really the key point. In Quebec, in British Columbia, which also have uh, the, the best subsidies for EVs, it really does make sense. So if you are wondering if you should buy an EV, uh, the first question I'm going to ask you is, first, do you really need a vehicle? And I think a lot of people do. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's normal. And it's really about um, acknowledging the fact that there is an accessibility issue for public transit. There is equity problems. So we need those vehicles on the road. Um, and so British Columbia, Quebec, yes, go for EV. They're, they're way better from the environment than um, conventional vehicles. But if you're in Alberta or if you're in many states in the U.S., uh, no, they're actually worse currently, but they will be better at some point. So the EV contributes uh, in, in a jurisdiction, a state or a province, Alex, where the bulk of the available power it comes from a source like coal or oil or where, whatever, then no matter how uh, zealous you may be about your electric vehicle and, and all of that sort of thing, you're charging it uh, based on a power source that's burning fossil fuels. So it's a delusion 
to think that you're actually assisting the reduction of the carbon footprint. It is. I think it's a great summary. Um, and, you know, on the other side of the picture, places like British Columbia, heavily hydropowered uh, Quebec, almost 100% hydropowered, yes, the electricity is definitely clean. Um, but I also want to add something else on the picture that I said before. The batteries themselves are energy intensive. Yes. And uh, they don't, I think, my core expertise is in a tool called life cycle assessment. So what we do uh, at the University of Toronto, um, we uh, take an alternative technology or even a conventional one, and we assess their uh, emissions uh, across their life cycle. So we look at the material extraction, uh, the energy required, the emissions. We look at the, the component manufacturing and production, the batteries, and where are they produced, the, the transportation between those different places, the fuel production, uh, fuel con- c- c- combustion for mm. uh, diesel, gasoline, and the end of life. So we look at this big picture and we try to provide first recommendations, what are the solutions to reduce the emissions for a given vehicle life cycle. And we try to compare at the end and say, oh, look, um, conventional vehicles are right now um, the, the uh, very high emitting source globally, and electric vehicles could be a solution in some places. Uh, but there's many other trade-offs that we should think of. For example, an SUV is way more um, emitting than the Toyota Corolla. Mm-hmm. And so... You know, if we start shifting, for example, from if people shift their Toyota Corollas for huge um, electric Hummer, which have been <laughs> uh, went went out last week. I saw that and, yesterday. Yep, you bet. <laughs> exactly. I mean, this is a. I mean, from a climate change perspective, no, don't be fooled that you're going to do anything. It's 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 a bad idea. <laughs> yes, maybe a Tesla Model Three, but not an electric Hummer. Yeah, uh, I wanted to ask you about because you're right there in the middle of all the action there at the University of Toronto, Alex. Because now we have a commitment from the government of Ontario to not only General Motors in Oshawa, but far more recently to uh, Fiat Chrysler in Windsor to take yep. one of their production facilities of uh, conventional vehicles and uh, roll it over into an EV production line, both in Oshawa and Windsor. So. As a, an engineering consultant and researcher, has government, has anyone from government come to people like you and said, okay, so we're going to commit this amazing amount of money to supporting the production of electric vehicles in our jurisdiction, in in Oshawa and in Windsor. We'd really like some input here on how to get this right. <laughs> um, usually, no. I mean, obviously not me and, and not and nobody from my group. Um, yeah, I would not say that academia and research is very well connected with um, uh, with government for s- such type of decisions. And also it makes sense. I mean, um, it's also about jobs and it's also about uh, many economic factors that we don't fully grasp as, uh, you know, researchers. To say nothing of politics as well. Uh, <laughs> you got to exactly. throw that into the mix as well, don't you, Alex? But I'm, exactly. you know, my only point simply is that, you know, you were talking about the power safe jurisdictions like B.C. and Quebec. Where is Ontario in there? Because you have nuclear power in and around Metro Toronto, for example. Yes. But where is where is Ontario on a national level in terms of how they use their power to in turn charge electric vehicles. Now, that's a great point. Um, so we have few natural gas, a lot of hydro, a lot of nuclear. From a, a, a greenhouse gas emission perspective, electric vehicles reduce the emissions. So um, I think I was really pleased to see the investment, the half billion investment that uh, the federal and the provincial government uh, made 
to um, uh, the the facility. Uh, I think in. Um, I mean, anyway, the, the the Ford facility a couple of um, weeks ago. Right. Uh, and I think it is required uh, because electric vehicles are in the way. We need them. And Canada is, let, let's let's be honest, has, has been underfunded uh, EV production for a while. And so if we want to make sure that we stay competitive on the market, if we want to make sure that we produce locally vehicles, because once again, if we start relying on batteries that are produced in China currently, but also the U.S. is is trying to, to build their power, their uh, production capacities. Uh, there's, I think, there is many other geopolitical tensions okay. that uh, will uh, arise from that. On the line uh, from Montreal is Alex Milovanov. Uh, Mr. Van- Milovanov is a postdoctoral research environmental engineer at the University of Toronto, and he's written a piece uh, titled "The Myth of Electric Cars: Why We Also Need to Focus on Buses and Trains." Uh, and by the way, Alex, you did mention the Hummer a few moments ago that that General Motors has has revealed. I, I dug up during the news. I dug up this reservations for the first edition of that new Hummer which was revealed just a couple of days ago, Thursday night, filled up in 10 minutes. Uh, the page the page where you can plunk down 100 bucks to uh, reserve one of these for yourself. The, uh, the first edition Hummer, by the way, Alex, will set you back 112595 U.S. dollars. Uh, it's coming in late 2021. It offers a wait list, uh, but you can still uh, reserve the less souped up and less pricey versions going into production the following year. Uh, the company isn't saying how many reservations they took and therefore how many they project to build. So this is as much about building a buzz as it is building cars. Yes. But with a brand like Hummer, it's not too difficult to, to, to grab some attention, is it? No, it's not. I'm disappointed. I, I couldn't. I didn't book one. So now, <laughs> what, what I'm going to do? <laughs> but you know, when they build Hummers, whether it's in uh, the General Motors, I suspect will establish a production line for Hummers. I don't know whether it's going to be in Oshawa, Ontario, or one of their many American plants. But mm. when they start to build these electric cars and buses and trucks, as you noted earlier, and this is where I wanted to pick up our conversation because this is important to to potential e-vehicle drivers and customers the e-vehicles parts alex of the battery the power for these vehicles typically these days comes mostly from china correct indeed Uh, the the vast majority of the batteries so currently we're talking about uh, lithium-ion batteries um, and the, the one that are being sold in, in the uh, Tesla, for example, the, the major uh, producer is the lithium nickel cobalt aluminum oxide batteries. And okay. they are produced vastly from China. And, and they use resources that uh, if we go even more upstream, they use resources, lithium, uh, manganese, cobalt and nickel that are produced in Australia, uh, Chile, Congo and uh, some uh, major Southeast Asian countries, Indonesia, Philippines and South Africa for manganese. So you, you see the... the, the, the the huge global supply chain yes. of these different materials, and and I think that's one of the key issues that we have we have outlined in one of our in one of our recent work. We've quantified um, the the amount of EVs that are needed in the U.S. Uh, to be able to be to be aligned with the climate with the with the, our climate ambition with the Paris Agreement, right. and we realized that we probably don't have enough resources. Uh, to do that for the the globe. So if we only do that in the U.S., that the we would probably need a, a little bit more than one-third of the global resources of lithium. And so if we start looking at China and European countries, et cetera, 
we will not have the resources in the next couple of decades. And that's one key component that um, obviously will change and shift the technologies, but that will not happen in the next couple of years. And many manufacturers have, have, have made promises and now they are delaying the promises and talk, talking about solid state batteries. And now we have Toyota saying, oh, it's going to be out in 2025, mm-hmm. maybe a little bit later. And, and the time between is going to be out and the time is going to be massively pr- produced. There is a delay too. So I think it's part of this um, huge impact that EVs can have if we have a massive electrification. And and uh, and I think the, the key point, and that's one of the research we've done recently, is we're trying to show that because we have issues in terms of absolute numbers, there is an easy way to solve uh, these issues. I mean, it's never easy, but uh, it's to take a step back and to look at the full picture of our transportation system. Okay. Um, there, there, there are basically three different ways to reduce emissions from the transportation system. You, you can either avoid the need to travel. So this, this is about land use. This is about making sure that the commutes uh, are shorter. Um, and then we, we live closer to our workplace or we live closer to the different uh, places we need to go. Um, and so this is not only about our individual choices, but it's also about how do we design the cities and how do we design the transportation system. So this is not an easy one, but this is still here. And it's an important fact because in, in the past 70 years in North America, we have designed our cities around vehicles. We have built highways in the middle of the cities. And so we have created a huge urban sprawl that may travel even more uh, important. And the, the second part of the picture is the types of modes we're using. Individual vehicles are more energy intensive yes. than buses, trains, or obviously biking or walking. And so I think part of it is about individual behaviors. So sometimes we don't want to take the bus because we have an, a private passenger vehicle and, you know, nobody should be blamed for that. And and, and, right now, and nowadays, of course, Alex, we, we're seeing such a reduced, exactly. here in Metro Vancouver, for example, and I'm sure it's the, the case in Toronto and Montreal, uh, bus, uh, the, the trains, the metros, the, the sky trains here, subways in Toronto, train use is, is increasing rather significantly, but bus use is still way, way down. So a lot of people still driving in from the suburbs in their cars because they're still too nervous about crowding onto a bus but that yes. will eventually go away hopefully that's one of my worry about uh, the, the covid pandemic is um it will drive the emission up uh, because it, there is indeed a huge decrease in ridership yes and, and a huge increase in, in private passenger vehicles and i think we need to reassure the public that at some point obviously um when everything will be fine again uh, public transit is really a key component to uh, our, our, the well-functioning uh, aspect of our cities and our um, and many aspects of our society. Um, so yeah, they, they do decrease the emissions compared to individual vehicles, yeah. and they do decrease the emissions to compare compared to uh, even in electric vehicles. And the other aspect is they are actually easier to electrify, uh, and you can electrify them way faster. And you, you're not, you don't have the same issues of, uh, you know, trying to push every single driver to buy an EV. Mm-hmm. You can have a municipality that has huge investments, which is, you know, not a, an easy one. But still, you can invest in infrastructure and make sure that you electrify the entire bus. And if more people take them, it's going to be 
a better investment, a huge return on investment for the city itself. No question. Alex, a, a manufacturing question, if I may, to, and I'm almost out of time, but this is this is significant, I think, because it, 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 it sort of rolls into politics kind of as well, because if we're, it's about this dependence on China thing that we're coming back to here. Mm. Uh, and the fact that Canadians, a huge percentage of Canadians are quite the government of Canada for not standing up to China more, showing a little mm. more a more backbone in the face of some pretty belligerent behavior. Uh, and so now, uh, going forward, if we decide let's take some of our dependence on uh, our economic dependence on China out of the equation, are we in Canada capable, Alex, of producing these lithium batteries? Do we have in our enormous collection of rocks and trees? Uh, do we have the mm. minerals and the components? that we could generate here in Canada to produce our own power sources? So the answer is yes and no. Um, Canada, for example, has have no um, manganese resources, uh, which is uh, one of the current uh, important cr- uh, critical material. Uh, but there are technologies without manganese. So, okay, but Canada has, does not have a huge lithium batteries, uh, lithium, sorry, resource. Okay. Only 0.5% of the global reserves are in Canada. And that's I mean, that's not huge at all. If we electrify the entire fleet in Canada, we'll require way more than zero, than the 0.5%. Okay, right. So, yeah. So I think it's, it is about an absolute value once again, meaning that if we electrify 40 million vehicles, if, for example, we have a huge uh, uptake in, in vehicle ownership in the next couple of years because everybody wants to buy a new EV, no, Canada will not be able to provide these electric vehicles. But if we bet on EVs plus subways plus buses plus better designed cities then maybe we'll only need to electrify 15 to 20 million or probably less and that will be achievable with canadian uh, resources that's what i'm trying to uh, bet on we need to combine all the solutions together the uh, the article friends is up at the conversation.com i commend it to your reading it's uh, good stuff the myth of electric cars why we also need to focus on buses and trains the author is alex Milovanov, a postdoctoral research in environmental engineering at the University of Toronto, joining us from Montreal this morning. Alex, great to talk to you, sir. Uh, very, you very so inter- interesting conversation. I love the fact that you know as much as you do about the production of EVs. We must have this conversation going forward because this subject obviously is just beginning to uh, really attract the interest of Canadians. Thanks for this this morning. Exactly. Thank you so much. Uh, our pleasure. We're going to zoom in on a headline that caught our attention just a few days ago. No, this is not a 60s flashback. Here's the headline. BC researchers, advocates, and companies are at the forefront of Canada's psychedelic revolution. What exactly does that mean? Well, uh, um, it's being uh, spearheaded in many ways by a group called the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies, or MAPS, Canada. The executive director of MAPS Canada is Mark Hayden, and he joins us now with a look at the psychedelic revolution. Good morning, Mark. Thanks for joining us. Well, good morning, Sterling. 
What a beautiful day. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a nice big blanket on top of you right now, it is a beautiful day. It's, and it's going to be a gorgeous day. It's nice and clear. Uh, let's talk about the psychedelic revolution. What sort of substances are we talking about? Because when one thinks of this headline, immediately I'm old enough, to, to, to self, self-declaration here, Mark, I'm old enough to immediately have flashed back to Dr. Timothy Leary and the LSD experiments of the 1960s. Yeah, well, we're, we're, yes, I'm also old enough to remember that. And our message is absolutely and completely different from that of the 60s. Okay. I mean, the, 60s the 60s psychedelic process was all about young people using psychedelics in an uncontrolled way with un, un, using unknown substances and waving the flag of rebellion. Tune in, so, uh, turn on, and drop out, as I recall, well, with the mantra of the day. Exactly. And so what we're doing is absolutely completely different. We're using psychedelics in the context of treatment for major mental health disorders. And we're, there's a number of different psychedelic research organizations on the planet. The one that we're involved with is MAPS Canada. Right. And our, our primary study is using MDMA, sometimes known on the street as ecstasy, oh, okay. for, the treatment, for the treatment of PTSD, which is post-traumatic stress disorder. And so we are in the, actually in the process of legalizing it. We are doing our phase three clinical study. And that means that we are turning a molecule into a medicine. And we will legalize MDMA in the context of therapy. This is not something that is going to be used in dance halls. Exactly in the right. Context of, it's, it's nobody's dancing in our, in our therapeutic process. And we are going to legalize it and roll out clinics across Canada in about 2023. Interesting. Mark, well, can I stop you for just a second? Because back, sure. to, back, back to the 60s, if you don't mind, a little, sure. a little warp here for a moment. Um, walk be, down memory lane. Okay. Yeah, but, but in, in the 60s, the, the, uh, you're right. It was uh, very much an unregulated, youthful, experimental festival. However, yeah. however, those who were involved at the time were also aware, Mark, that at some level and somewhere on the planet, there was actual medical investigation into the psychological and therapeutic benefits of LSD. And in fact, we knew that somewhere there were uh, serious scientific experiments involving LSD going on while all the dancing and partying was happening uh, with the rest of the crowd. But there was an element of truth to that, wasn't there? Well, in fact, it's interesting that you mentioned that because the, the truth was strongest in Canada. The, the research studies on psychedelics around the world were led primarily by a group in Weyburn, Saskatchewan, hmm. um, under Abraham Hoffer, and, um, and they were working with trying to understand. They, had, they were working with three drugs. They were working with mescaline, psilocybin, and LSD. Right. And it was about 15 years. And there were thousands of studies published. And what they concluded at the end of that process was LSD was very useful in the treatment of alcoholism. Mm. And then they were showing a lot of promise. And unfortunately, the cultural tidal wave of backlash against psychedelics swept the world. And the research, in spite of the promise of it, was shut down. So, so you're right. In fact, the word psychedelic was actually coined in Canada. Did not know that. 
Yeah. And so when they, uh, and I'm assuming that the research w- was shut down uh, sort of collectively uh, based on this is not actual science, this is science disguised, this is a party disguised as science, uh, and, and so it became uh, necessary. Was it a global simultaneous shutdown, Mark? Well, it was primarily, I mean, it started from the United States. It was the hippies who objected to the Vietnam War. Right. And you know, the war on drugs, the, the demonization of the people who are leading the charge, who, honestly, it, I mean, Timothy Leary was not skillful. You know, he, 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 he escaped from academia and became a proselytizer. Yes. And he stopped his, you know, academic investigation. And so he sent exactly the wrong message. And then there was a cultural backlash. But it was within the context of the Vietnam War, really. Because what happened was the people in power of the day wanted to um, do what people in power often do, which is uh, um, prevent people who are objecting to their messaging, and they did so by criminalizing their drug use. Mm-hmm. And that's actually quite consistent. You know, if you look at the, you know, within the context of the larger war on drugs, which has been going on since well, 1908 in Canada with mm-hmm. the Opium Act, it's often about dominant parties. Um, uh, um, shutting down, um, objecting to minorities that they disapprove of within their communities. And there's many examples between opium, heroin, cannabis, and now psychedelics. So that, that's a repetitive pattern. The, the war on drugs was actually created through a racist process. Interesting stuff. I've got to take a break, but I want to get one more question in before we do. And that's that's the notion that you've already introduced, that the government of Canada, the Minister of Health and her department, seriously considering the legalization or decriminalization, I don't know which of the two applies here, Mark, of certain medicines, psilocybin being one of them. How close are we to legalization of said products, Mark, and has the legalization of cannabis made the process easier? Um, The first question is very close, and the second question is yes. Let me elaborate. So there's multiple tracks of legalization of psychedelics that are alive and well in Canada today. Our stage one, two, and three clinical trials will result in MDMA-assisted psychotherapy becoming legal in about 2022 or 2023. Okay. But the, there is another process going on that you alluded to, which is there is a group in Victoria called Theracil that have applied for access to psilocybin, yes. which is the ingredient in magic mushrooms, to be used for end-of-life anxiety. And they're actually doing it differently than we are, we're going through the regular medicalization of process. We're turning a molecule into a medicine the way all other medicines are created. Mm-hmm. But they're, they're making a very simple observation, and they're saying, if, we, if in Canada you have a right to die, if you can take a drug that will kill you, and a, you know, the made process, mm-hmm. that is now legal in Canada, if you have the right to die, why can't that same population take a substance that will give them a sense of uh, spirituality, meaning, and purpose to life, and allow them to meet their maker and make peace with their death. They have a right to try, mm. essentially. That's a pretty powerful argument. Certainly and is, yeah. The, the Minister of Health federally has agreed and now has granted um, less than 10 so far. It's about seven or eight, I'm not sure. Um, people, bad ability. And so, yes, they're slowly legalizing access or preventing um, the law from being applied when they possess 
magic mushrooms, quite frankly. Mark Hayden is with us. Mr. Hayden is the uh, Canada Executive Director for MAPS, which is the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies uh, based here in BC, among other places. Mark, we were talking about magic mushrooms. The first, uh, and I'm sure you've heard this story perhaps hundreds, if not at least dozens of times. My first exposure to all of this came in the 70s, uh, driving on Vancouver Island, just uh, out uh, checking it out, came down off the Malahat onto the flats at the bottom end uh, and noticed all sorts of cars lined up and uh, down both sides of the roads and on the side roads as well and all sorts of people in the fields walking around bent over. And so we pulled off to the side and said, what's going on? And somebody says, well, mushrooms. I said, well, you mean like magic mushrooms? Yes. You mean they grow here? Yes. And uh, how much do they cost? They don't. You go pick them. And, uh, and uh, so I had no idea that they were native to British Columbia and rather plentiful. And uh, uh, is that still the case? Yeah, there's multiple types of magic mushrooms that grow in the wild. Um, there's liberty crops, there's cyanessens. Um, they're, they're within the category of what I would call LBMs, which are little brown mushrooms. Okay. Um, and so they're not as easy to identify as some other mushrooms that aren't um, just LBMs. So actually, I would recommend people not go out and pick them because mm-hmm. there's there's, a, there's a, a certainly a number of people that show up at hospitals every single year from misidentifying LBM. Excellent point. So, so I would uh, generally strongly encourage people not to do that. The, uh, the research that takes place looking at the, the um, multiple treatment effects of psilocybin don't use natural mushrooms. They use synthetic psilocybin. Mm. Uh, and which is what you're doing. You're turning, uh, as you as you said a few times now, you're turning a molecule into a medicine. Yes, um, we all, all researchers use synthetic, partly because if you want to have absolutely standard dosages um, and standard products, then you need to have a pure synthetic molecule. Um, within the context of a magic mushroom, there's multiple drugs. There's psilocin, there's psilocybin, there's norbeocysteine, there's baocysteine, there's chitin. So there's all kinds of things in there that, that are complicated and not fully known and not particularly helpful if you want to just say, this is a medicine, yeah. we know what it is, and it has this effectiveness. You have to work with pure compounds. Mark, what is the what is the advantage? Uh, what does the drug, what does the psilocybin or its equivalent do that makes it so useful in psychotherapy? Well, let, let's let's start with a slightly broader question. What what are we treating? So, what we're treating with MDMA is PTSD, post traumatic stress disorder. Okay. That's our first study. The second one is eating disorders, and then there's. Um, MDMA for psychotherapy in the context of couples, which is an interesting one. One of the couple has PTSD and the other one is really distressed by the fact their partner has PTSD. In the context of psilocybin, they're treating a variety of things from addiction to other mental health disorders. So that's other researchers, that's not us, but the the end-of-life anxiety piece is what's being legalized in Canada. I see, okay. Process called Section 56 exemptions. So, you know, there are many different um, indications and many different substances that are being discussed in the context of this psychedelic renaissance, yes. Yeah, Mark, so how might 
um, some how might how might the psilocybin and other substances that you're currently experimenting with and requesting uh, further legalization uh, from the government how might that uh, fit into combating the opioid crisis we have on our hands here in BC? Well, um, two there's two separate ways that they link. Um, one is part of the opiate crisis is made worse by the process of drug prohibition. The opiate crisis, as you know, is largely, not, not fully, but largely um, involving with people who are very marginalized. Mm-hmm. And part of the process of treatment and healing and helping that population is not marginalizing them and seeing it as a health problem, not a criminal justice problem. So the more we can see those folks as being engageable with public health, the healthier that whole system will become. And psychedelics are part of that process because we are legalizing psychedelics. So ending prohibition will help the health crisis. That's one track that we are helpful on. And the other track is psychedelics help trauma. And a lot of people with, you know, opiate use disorders are traumatized. Mm-hmm. And we can we, we are so far demonstrating the most effective treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder that's ever happened anywhere. And uh, again, this is uh, ongoing and uh, clearly in need of, of more uh, more experiment. Are you finding, and a last question to you because I'm almost out of time, what's the enthusiasm level of your peers in the medical community for the kind of work you, you're doing? Well, initially, physicians weren't that excited because they didn't understand it. Um, it's now becoming huge in the medical community. And I have a, I have a, I really believe that it's important to talk to doctors specifically because what we're working with is medicalization. Yeah. By that I mean it'll be available on prescription. And I have about 50 physicians on my list who are keenly interested in further discussions and are identifying themselves as wanting to be involved in our research, actually. So that, that we're very, very we believe that engagement of psychiatrists and MDs and anesthesiologists, you know, a whole range of different positions is actually really important, and they're responding enthusiastically. Glad to hear it. Glad to hear it. And let me commend uh, your website to our listeners this morning, mapscanada.org. It's uh, all about the Multidisciplinary Association for Psychedelic Studies. Its executive director is Mark Hayden. Thanks for doing this this morning. Very interesting conversation, Mark. We will talk again. Thanks a lot for this morning. Thanks, darling. Time to look backwards as we go forward with a project that has already cost us an astonishing amount of money and is likely to cost us even more than we somehow or another have psyched ourselves up to pay. And I'm talking about the Site C Dam. Sarah Cox is with us. Ms. Cox is a reporter with the Narwhal and has been doing an extensive uh, bit of research on the Site C Dam uh, through a Freedom of Information request with BC Hydro a few months ago and some of the findings well, uh, we're just going to have to get Sarah to tell you about it herself. Sarah joins us from Victoria this morning. Thanks for joining us. Good morning, Sarah. Good morning, Sterling. It's my pleasure. Well, it's good to have you with us. Let's start about. Uh, let's start with with why you decided to go after the BC Hydro people uh, with a request for freedom of information documents. What were you looking for, Sarah? 
Well, I wasn't looking for anything in particular, but um, I, well, I suppose I was looking for transparency because all the way along there has been a lack of transparency about this project to the point where we had uh, international hydro expert Harvey Elwin testifying for a court case that in, in five decades of working on large hydro projects around the world, including in China on the Three Gorges Dam, that he had never encountered the type of secrecy that he had encountered uh, with Site C. So it's been a very secretive project. The public has not been privy to much information about it. And when the NDP government um, was elected in 2017, they set up something called the Site C Project Assurance Board. And that was supposed to be an oversight board. And I subsequently tried asking for information about the board, about its findings, about its members, and I was told that that information would not be released. So that's what led me to put in a Freedom of Information request, asking for all the documents related to this board's findings and a list of its members. Interesting, but to just uh, bear with us and be patient with us for another couple of seconds, Sarah, and then we'll get up to the current stuff. Go back, uh, because you're talking about this this culture of secrecy surrounding Site C, and this is a, this is the recent round of secrecy that you've encountered. But take us back through the timeline of Site C and remind us of of, of how long it's been around and how much or how little we know since its inception. Yes, this has been a project that has been around for a very long time. It was proposed in the early 80s. Yes. And at that time, the, the BC Utilities Commission, which is kind of an independent watchdog looking out for the public interest, spent they spent two years reviewing the project in the early 80s. And at that time, the energy was found not to be needed and the project was determined not to be in the public interest. And then we fast forward to the early 90s, where the issue of building this third dam on the Peace River came up again. And BC Hydro's own board of directors said, no, we're never going to build this dam. The environmental implications are too great. The cost is too high and we don't need the energy. Mm -hmm. And then we we fast forward again to um, about 2010 when the Liberal government was in power and they decided to go ahead with this project. But in order to go ahead with it, they changed legislation to remove the BC Utilities Commission from examining the project in depth to determine if it was in the public interest. So, and then we, we fast forward again to 2017 when the NDP was elected, they sent the project for a fast-tracked review looking only at its economics with the Utilities Commission. And the Utilities Commission concluded that there were, for $8.8 billion, we could produce the energy from other sources for, for $8.8 billion or less, and that the project's cost could exceed $12 billion. Mm-hmm. And yet, yet it went ahead. And so the culture of secrecy, the real secrecy stuff, actually began really about 10 years ago under the Liberals when they separated the oversight from the project. 
Yes, that that is correct. And in fact, there has been very little, some would argue no, uh, public oversight of this project as it has moved along. It's been very difficult to get information about it. It's been impossible until now to get information about the Site C Project Assurance Board. Uh, BC Hydro submits quarterly Site C reports to the Utilities Commission, but the Utilities Commission is not empowered to dig into those reports to ask questions. Right. Ask for more information. Mm-hmm. So now, here we are in October of 2020. Uh, thank you for your patience on this one, Sarah. Now we're at the story you filed through two or three days ago for the Narwhal, uh, entitled Top BC Government Officials New Site C Dam Was in Serious Trouble Over a Year Ago. And then you quote, FOI docs. This is the stuff that you uh, petitioned BC Hydro for, and seven and uh, seven and a half months later, got the information back. Was was it typical, Sarah? Did you get like thousands of pages, and most of them were blacked out or redacted, or did you get actual information? Well, surprisingly enough, I got actual information amidst many, many redactions. Okay. And so there were more than 2,000 pages, actually more than 2,200 pages. There were many, many redactions. Key sections of the documents, including information related to rising cost pressures and the severity of the key project risks dating back to the inception of the Site C Project Insurance Board in January 2018, right through to January of this year, are redacted. But even despite those redactions, the the documents um, project a picture of a project that has been rife with geotechnical issues that have been growing and risks as well as safety and quality concerns and looking at a at a rising risk of more cost overruns and schedule delays uh, dating back to um, uh, mid last year and of course when when we finally received some very overdue reports quarterly reports from BC Hydro at the end of July this year mm-hmm. It seemed that, well, the government kind of fudged their answers when asked how long they had knew. They did not answer those questions directly. But now, um, with the uh, release of these documents and the list of board members, and knowing that two top BC civil servants, uh, one in the finance ministry, the other in the energy ministry, had this information at their fingertips about uh, increasing geotechnical concerns and about um, rising costs, Um, relating back to last September, um, which is nearly one year before the public learned of significant problems and the soaring price tag um, for this project, it uh, would certainly indicate that the B.C. government has been sitting on this information. Yeah, certainly sounds like it, doesn't it, Sarah? And also, I suppose that's why, uh, because of this culture of secrecy and uh, the negative content of some of this information that you were able to finally unravel from the hydro people, uh, did it surprise you in retrospect, now especially we can talk about it again, being the day after, did it surprise you at all that this matter, this sightsee thing, was not even a discussion item during the provincial election? Um, It does surprise me. It continues to surprise me. 
um, because this is the largest publicly funded infrastructure project in BC's history. And it's been proceeding largely out of sight and out of mind for British Columbians um, in northeast um, BC. It's yep. been, that's where the Peace River is. That's where the dam uh, is being built, although the dam itself, the structure itself hasn't, hasn't been started yet. Um, so that is surprising. And it, what is also surprising is that when you think back to something like the fast ferry scandal and the amount of money that was invested in that and the amount of ink that, that it generated, and then you compare it to this, which is hugely more expensive. Yeah. Uh, one, what, what basically BC Hydro and the government said at the end of July is that after boosting the price tag by another $10 billion, sorry, another $2 billion two years ago, three years ago now, they now say that they don't know what it will cost to finish the project. They don't know when it will be finished, and they're not sure how to resolve these very profound geotechnical problems. Interesting. Got to take a break here, Sarah. They say it's going to be, it's slated for completion in 2024, but you just said they don't know when it's going to be finished. So is that a guess? Well, that was the date that was on the books for it to be finished. And now they're saying that uh, as of the end of July, they don't know. Joined on the line by Sarah Cox. Ms. Cox is a reporter for the Narwhal and has been working on a story about the Site C Dam. Uh, began months ago with an information request for a freedom of information request from BC Hydro uh, that took many months to uh, organize, but finally the results came back. And beyond the redactions, Sarah was able to determine uh, the story, which is headlined Top BC Government Officials New Site C dam was in serious trouble over a year ago and then you quote sarah the foi docs as your source of information on that so without getting all geological engineer on us for goodness sake what is the problem why and and and, and if we've known about it for a year why haven't we heard about it all i see on the headline is deepening geotechnical problems what does that mean so um, included in the documents was a report from Site C's technical advisory board. And um, that board was sending its reports to the Site C project assurance board. I have previously tried to get the technical advisory board reports through an FOI and they came back almost completely redacted. Okay. But the documents point to a meeting that took place at the end of May of last year of the Technical Advisory Board. And at that meeting, the Technical Advisory Board wrote that the stability of the dam is, and I quote, a significant risk and the hazards associated with the weak foundation have been adequately recognized. Mm. So that's it in a nutshell. The project has a weak foundation. They're not sure anymore or right now um, how to safely and firmly anchor the dam structure, the generating station, and the spillways. And this is because it's being built on on slate. It's not being built in a narrow uh, canyon like many dams, a narrow rocky canyon like many dams are. So there are problems with the very foundation of the dam. Okay, and the other problem that I understand or the, what's contributing to the problem or potentially contributing to the problem down the road, Sarah, is this a particular part of northeastern British Columbia is also uh, rather well endowed with natural gas and other uh, substances that we may choose to export in the future. And uh, the one recovery way that is going to happen uh, most likely would be fracking. 
fracking. And were fracking to begin to take place in that part of British Columbia, it could severely affect the progress of the dam, yes? Um, well, so there are rules about how close to dams fracking can take place. I there, would hope so. There are buffers around them. However, that said, the Site C project is in a in an area that's filled with faults that can become critically stressed during fracking operations, which, of course, are, are poised to expand significantly in the Northeast to supply gas for the LNG Canada export project. Right. And it's been documented that in 2017 and 2018, more than 10,000 earthquakes, most of them small, took place in that wider geographic area. But one of those earthquakes was large enough that it shook the Site C Dam construction site that was about two years ago, and workers were forced to evacuate. Ah, okay. So th- so this we've known. Now, this was a couple of years ago with, with earthquakes and so on. I suppose, though, most people would want to know, and again, uh, hopefully the homework you've done is, is capable of answering this, why, I and mean, you think of dams, you think of the Hoover Dam and the Three Gorges Dam and other uh, famous world landmarks, and they are all typically in canyons. They're built into natural uh, sort of uh, facilities that would uh, accommodate that kind of thing. And for some reason, the Peace River, uh, the Site C Dam, wasn't built in that kind of natural setting. And and we've done, um, and we're building it on shale on top of all of that. So why, back to the origins, or the origins, rather, this whole project, did they choose to do it this way, Sarah? Well, I don't know the answer to that. You would have to ask BC Hydro that. Um, I think that there's been a big push all the way along to build this third dam on the Peace River. BC Hydro's had this dam on the books for decades. Um, Of course, you know, it's possible that if we throw enough money at it, that these problems can be fixed. And we will uh, hopefully find that out when Peter Milburn issues his report. He was appointed by the government in the in the late summer to to report back on what exactly is going on. But the question is how much it will cost uh, to fix it. There were two expert reports that came out uh, just this month that look at whether or not it would be cheaper to cancel the project at this point in time. Mm-hmm. One of them, if, if it is going to cost billions more to complete it, just saying that taxpayers or ratepayers and ultimately taxpayers um, would be better off if there's going to be a lar- another large cost increase to cancel it. And one of those reports came from the C.D. Howe Institute. Okay, so uh, there is the, there is the possible. I suppose that possibility. But again, I'm just reflecting on the enthusiasm that Premier Horgan has shown towards this project, and of course, he's just been returned with a resounding majority. And I don't doubt that his enthusiasm for this project has been dampened one bit. So it would suggest that, regardless of what the facts may be on the table, the enthusiasm level uh, from the government steering this project, Sarah, appears from at least this distance to be unabated they uh, uh, full speed ahead yes well i'm not sure right now because um premier horgan hinted during the election campaign he said that he was going to wait for that report and that then he was going to take things from there and he he said time and time again in december 2017 
when the NDP greenlighted the project that that uh, they had no choice. Now, that was always a question of debate. At that point in time, there were about $1.9 billion in sunk costs. Today, we're looking at about $5 billion in sunk costs. So the question is, as, as people point out, it's not what we spent, but what we will spend from here on in. And a decision needs to be made about whether or not the costs that will be incurred from here on in are so great that ratepayers and taxpayers would be better off by cancelling the project. Is it possible, Sarah, and I've only got about a minute left, is it possible that some of those costs may be incurred by literally revisiting the construction phase and redoing parts of it to improve what is already there? Yes, that's possible, but we we really don't have details on that. And again, um, I think that there's a big call for... for, um, uh, the the report, the Milburn report, to be transparent, to be released in full, so that we have all the information, and that, so taxpayers and and ratepayers can know the cost of finishing this project, the cost of potential cancellation, and a decision can be made um, in the interests of ratepayers and taxpayers. If we look at what's happened in, in Newfoundland with the Muskrat Falls Dam, ratepayers there are, are facing significant um, increases in hydro rates due to that project, and we certainly don't want to see that happen in British Columbia. Indeed, we don't. Uh, great story. Thank you for it, and I'm commending it to, uh, to our listeners. The narwhal.ca is where you go to find Sarah's story. Top BC government officials knew Site C Dam was in serious trouble over a year ago. FOI Docs. Sarah Cox, the author of the story. Thank you for joining us this morning, Sarah. We'll talk again. Clearly, this isn't far from over. Definitely not. Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure. It's time to talk food runners on the program today, and we're lucky to have two people with us. Tristan Jagger is the founder and CEO of Vancouver Food Runners, and Deb Bryant is with us. Deb is the CEO of the YWCA of Metro Vancouver. Tristan and Deb, good morning and welcome to you both. Good morning. Thank you so much for having us. Well, it's great to have you with us. Tristan, start with you. Let's talk about Vancouver Food Runners. I went to the website, which is VancouverFoodRunners.com, and it says in one very nifty, tight little sentence, we rescue perfectly viable food that is destined for our waste stream and get it into the hands of those who are hungry in our community. How long have you been doing this? That's right. So we've been up and running since about March. And so right around when COVID-19 hit, we found that um, there was a ton of food insecurity. And we were very lucky that we had amazing partners like the Y that uh, recognized what we were doing and asked for help. Okay, now Deb, uh, so you've been there uh, involved with this project right from the get-go as a recipient of of this uh, exercise. Tell us about how you heard about it and why you so enthusiastically jumped on board. Well, we heard about it from our through our community programmers, and uh, this kind of a an an initiative is just brilliant, and it has. it's really made a difference uh, for the women and families that we serve. Uh, people are able to get food uh, uh, delivered either through our programs or, or right to their homes. And um, it just makes all the difference for people who are looking at an empty fridge and have a couple of kids in the house and just need that support and need quality food. So uh, it was it was just a, a brilliant uh, partnership for us. Deb, without being any, very specific at all, approximately how many people are directly affected by Tristan and the gang at uh, Food Runners? 
Gee, I'm not sure if I could give you an exact number, but it'll certainly be in the dozens. Yeah. We have um, dozens of families accessing services through our Crabtree Corner community uh, in the downtown east side. And um, those are uh, new moms, um, senior women, and, uh, and families that live in the neighborhood who have, uh, most of whom are living on really limited incomes. Yeah. Tristan, where do you get the food? So it, it depends, but um, we generally are getting it from bakeries, restaurants, um, grocery stores, food, uh, produce suppliers, and, thing, and fresh sliced pizza actually gives us a leftover pizza. But the model is really interesting because it's all perish. A lot of times it's very perishable food because we are able to move that food really quickly. Right. So we can send a volunteer right away to pick up that the food as soon as it's posted on our app. And we can have it delivered to the, um, the charity within 10 to 15 minutes. There was another outfit that did something similar to that. I expect they're still mm-hmm. running. They're called Spud uh, around Vancouver. Ah. Uh, and it's... it's, yeah. it's it's, this, it's a similar type well, operation, but they seem to be doing it in a different way. Yeah, so that's, um, that's more of like a grocery delivery exactly, service, yeah. I, I think. Um, yeah, this one, yeah, so this is at least it's free food, this, this one. So we kind of think of ourselves as the um, Uber Eats or DoorDash for surplus food, but with the, with, but with the driving powered by volunteers. Mm-hmm. So, um, yeah, so it's kind of, yeah, so very similar, but a little bit different. It's a wonderful idea, Tristan. And of course, as you pointed out a couple of times, it is very much volunteer driven. So how has it yes. been? How has it been gathering and recruiting and keeping staffed up the volunteers you need to make this thing work? Yeah, so actually, I've been completely blown away by um the Vancouver community and how generous they have been with their time. So when we started in March, we just sort of had about 15 volunteers and it has grown to about 426 volunteers. Wow. Just in the last two days. Yeah. Just in the last two days, we've had about 75 new volunteers sign up on our app. Um, It's very simple for uh, people to just download the Vancouver Food Runners app and then they can go on and it's sort of like on-demand volunteering. You can just do it when you feel like it, when you have the time, maybe coming home from the office or going to, you know, your your friend's house or something, make it part of your schedule. Mm -hmm. You can do it one time a week or you can do it, you know, more than that. It's just... It's just totally up to your own schedule. So, um, yeah, we've been blown away by the amount of people that have signed up. And, Deb, I would imagine, as it has previously been the case, when people are recipients of of a program like this, in many cases, certainly not all, but in many cases, you see people who have benefited from a program turning around when they're able and becoming volunteers themselves. Well, that's entirely true, and I, I don't know any clear examples or specific examples of volunteering for food runners, but we have a lot of uh, women and families that um, have started off by connecting to uh, to the YWCA through our program right. and go on to volunteer with us and also uh, to join us as staff uh, members. So there's a real, um, I would say there's a real path forward for people as when they have these sometimes very simple, in this case, very creative supports. Uh, to just uh, stabilize their their day-to-day lives. And Tristan, if I am listening now and I am at a food source, I'm at a restaurant or a catering business of some kind, and, you know, occasionally we have the capacity to to be able to contribute to a program like this, and I think it's a great idea. How do I get in touch with you in order to make that connection to become a future donor? 
Yes, absolutely. And that is what we're looking for. We are really in need of food suppliers right now because we have all these volunteers willing to take the food to the charities. Um, so if they would just head to our website, www.vancouverfoodrunners.com, and there's a form there, they can just quickly fill out maybe less than a minute, and we will get a hold of them right away. We actually just onboarded five new food suppliers yesterday, Good. including Tractor Food Services. So, yeah, we are very excited about that. Yeah, at uh, VancouverFoodRunners.com, friends, you uh, you can go to donate mm-hmm. food or receive food or volunteer exactly. or donate, which, exactly. of course, would also be very much appreciated. There's all sorts of opportunities for people mm-hmm. in the community. And, you know, we found, to both of you, with a 30-second time limit here, we found a lot of people with a lot more time time on their hands than they certainly expected to for the last few months, have been looking around Mm -hmm. for constructive things to do with that time. This Mm -hmm. is certainly one option, isn't it? Yes, I believe so. And, you know, yes. Sorry, go ahead. Go ahead, Tristan. Okay, I was just going to say it's also a very safe way to volunteer during the pandemic. So, you know, you have, you're in the safety of your car. The food suppliers leave the food out front, and um, the charity recipients will will also make arrangements to leave, so that you can leave the food out front of the charity, which the Y has done many times for us. And then their chef comes out and takes it in. Excellent. So that there's not any contact with anybody else. It's, yeah. a, it's a great program. Thank you both for bringing it to our attention again. Deb, particularly as uh, the uh, person representing so many beneficiaries of this outstanding program. And Tristan, thumbs up and hats off to you. Keep up the good work. And if you're listening and want to donate, uh, contribute, volunteer, it's all at Vancouver Food Runners. It's uh, definitely the kind of day that, you know, in many, many parts of Canada, people will be putting on the skates and heading out to the backyard rink for a few spins and a little little puck action for an hour or two. Uh, But it's not that kind of year. It's a difficult year for hockey players of all ages. And, uh, well, Hockey Canada has got involved here with a little money and a lot of energy for young Canadian hockey players. Here to talk about it is Greg Westlake. Greg is a member of Canada's national para-hockey team. He's a gold medal medalist from the 20, uh, 2006 Paralympic Winter Games, and he's a four-time gold medalist at the uh, World Para Hockey Championships in 08, 11, 13, and 17, a veteran and a medalist many times over. Greg Westlake, good morning and welcome. Hey, good morning. Thanks for having me. It's great to have you with us. Where do we find you today, Greg? Where are you calling us from? I'm actually in Burlington, Ontario right now, actually. Just moved here with my wife uh, about three weeks ago, actually. Interesting stuff. So talk to us a little bit about the Million Dollar Assist Fund from Hockey Canada, the Hockey Canada Foundation specifically, Greg. But clearly, this is an unusual year, to say the very least. So give us a little bit of the background between behind the, the headline, which, of course, is the Million Dollar uh, Foundation grant for young Canadian hockey players. Uh, absolutely. So it's something that we're actually uh, really excited about. So it's a million dollars, and, and the whole goal is, you know, we understand that every province, town, and everybody has their own rules right now about registering and getting back on the ice and the return to play. But, you know, when you are able to, we're going to be there and say, hey, listen, we, we know it's been hard times. We know people are, are, are struggling in a lot of different ways, and so we just want to help any way we can. And, and the way that we came up with was we're going to make sure that it doesn't cost you anything to register and play hockey. Uh-huh. And so basically, we're taking care we're taking care of the registration fees so that you can take your kid and, and get them involved in the game because ultimately for us it's all about inclusion and we don't want anyone 
after COVID and, uh, you know, during all these hard times to miss out on, on playing, you know, one of the most popular sports in Canada and making friends and being active and being fit and, and living that lifestyle. We just don't want anyone to miss out on that. And so that's what we're going to do is just make sure that everybody can play. No, it's fantastic. Of course, Greg, it's wonderful stuff. Uh, the, the amount is a, a million dollars. Uh, how, how does that get allocated across? One thinks of course, of the, the obvious mathematics of being Canadian where 13 million people live in Ontario and five in BC. And, <laughs> and so does, is that how it does the million dollars get broken up according to population and distributed in that way? Yeah, so right now we're doing applications. And so you just go to hockeycanada.ca backslash assist fund and you just apply. And so it'll get allocated uh, based on the applications. And there's already been, you know, upwards of a thousand applications just in the first week. And uh, so basically you just apply, kind of share your story with us, which I was actually reading this morning. And there's some very touching stories I'm about sure. people who, who want to get involved in it and get into hockey. And so, yeah, you just go, go to the website, uh, apply for the fund. And then we take care of your registration fees. So it, it doesn't matter what, what province you are, what, where you are in Canada. If, if you reach out, you will hear back from us. Excellent. Now, uh, uh, the reaching out, is that being done on an individual basis, Greg? Or would the league president approach Hockey Canada on behalf of all of the teams? Uh, again, I'm just trying because you're saying you're reading touching yeah. stories and individual stories. But how, how, so is it done on a person by person or league by league basis? So right now, kind of person by person, okay. so you can either apply for your own. So you can apply for your own child, or you can apply for somebody else. So you know, if I happen to know somebody who uh, who might need an assist or might need some help getting back into the game, I could reach out for somebody uh, else, or I could reach out for maybe my own child. Ah, okay. And, and so uh, you said you've been receiving its own. This project has only been up and running for a few days, and you've already received thousands of applications. That's a good sign, don't you think? <laughs> Honestly, it's absolutely amazing because, you, you know, it, it's very nervous times right now. You know, you don't know how comfortable people will be going back to the rinks and, and getting back involved. But based on what we're seeing, people are itching to, to, to be active and return to sport. And, you know, people can't wait to play hockey again. Well, you talked about return to play. And here in B.C., of course, we have, uh, we're very lucky. We have Dr. Bonnie Henry, and she's been just the boss and uh, really on the scene. And so when leagues, sport leagues of all types, uh, went to, you know, there's their turn came and it's, it's time to start the season. What do we do this year? And so, of course, with WorkSafe B.C. <laughs> and, and, and the Provincial Health Office, a series of directives uh, under return to play have been formulated. And now people, there's a, a roadmap, Greg, so people know that, if it's a soccer team or a hockey team or whatever your sport may be, uh, there are safe and approved ways to get back at it. Uh, this is an enormous thing uh, for younger players, particularly, as we've learned uh, through the uh, ups and downs of returning the nation's children to school over the past few months, Greg. We've also learned from every level how important socialization is to young people and sport is a big part of socialization, isn't it? Hundred percent. I, I know for me, growing up on, you know, two artificial legs, hockey was that was my outlet. That was how I made my friends. That was, you know, I moved around a lot, and I would just move to a new town, join the hockey team, and that's really where a lot of my social circles, all my lifelong best friends, they all came from sport. And, and it's one of the things that drew me to kind of supporting this fund was just, you know, I've had some of the best experiences I've had in my life. I've, I've made some lifelong friends 
from hockey, and you want everybody to have those same opportunities. And, and right now, I'm watching all my nieces and nephews at home going, you know, stir crazy. And I know my little niece, you know, she wants to be the next Mary Mary Philip Poulin. She misses hockey so much, but you know, now she can get back on the ice and skate again and see her friends again. And it's just amazing how much happier she is that she can go hang out with her friends again and not just be at home. Exactly. So uh, it really is a special thing. And, of course, there's just the physical activity, too, Greg. I mean, there's, there's the social aspect and the schmoozing and all of that, but there's also just being out <laughs> just being up and active as well, isn't it? 100%. You, you know, kids are missing school right now, and, uh, you know, just going to get that physical activity, breaking a sweat, you know, it's, it's mental health, it's physical health, it's everything. You're 100% right, and it's just... Um, you know, you hate to see kids missing out on those opportunities. So we're really proud of the fund, and we think a lot of people are going to benefit from it. And, uh, yeah, to, to your point, not just the socialization, but getting out, getting active, and just learning the benefits of an active lifestyle. Absolutely. Now, I'm looking at the Hockey Canada website. It's hockeycanada.ca, friends and parents and players. Uh, and uh, you can just click. It's right there, right in front of your face when you open the homepage. It's all about the assist. <laughs> and so you click on that, and there's an article that goes on to describe it and uh, the three ambassadors are yourself Marie-Philippe Poulain and Jerome McGinley how did you come to be chosen as an ambassador Greg well I, I'm just a big, a big fan of Hockey Canada I've obviously been with the organization for a long time now and um, you know I was the captain of, of the para hockey team for about 10 years and so I, I just take a lot of pride in in being a leader in that program and for my community and people around me and you know when they when they said that the other two ambassadors were going to be Marie-Philippe Poulain Jerome McGinley, I immediately said yes, because they're incredible people in their own right and tremendous ambassadors. And I remember I met Jerome McGinley the first time about 10 years ago, and it was right when I got named uh, an assistant captain of my team. And I asked him for some advice. I said, Jerome, like, I, I just got put in a leadership role. Do you have any advice you could give me? Any words of wisdom? And he just told me, man, you have to include everybody. Don't let anybody feel left out. If you're going for dinner, invite everybody. You, you know, it, it's all about creative and inclusive atmosphere. And so now, 10 years later, I'm on this fund with Jerome, and and it's the same goal. It's to include everybody, to not let anyone feel left out. And so it's funny how things come full circle, but when I found out it was Jerome and Marie-Philippe, I was over the moon excited about it because they're great people. Well, no kidding, indeed. And what an excellent piece of advice from Jerome for a a, a young uh, assistant captain on a hockey team about inclusivity, huh? Uh, Absolutely. He he was amazing. He he, he took the time and, you know, really you know, treated me so great just as a young guy asking for a favor. And so, no, I'll always remember that. So, you know, now doing this with him, it's been a really, really cool experience. And it's funny how, you know, that same advice 10 years ago still rings true today, which is just to include everybody. Don't let anyone feel left out. It's amazing, you know, what can happen then. Do you still play, Greg? I still play. Yeah, I want to do one more uh, Paralympics. So I'm training right now. I think we're just under 500 days out from the next one. So I'm hard at work right now. Interesting. And of course, in Southern Ontario, you're surrounded by a lot of other Olympians, uh, many of whom are uh, probably a little ticked and a little upset metabolically because they were supposed to have competed in Tokyo this summer and didn't. And they have to keep themselves stoked and tuned up for another, what, six or eight months. That's got to be a real challenge for some of those summer athletes, don't you think? Oh, it's it's so hard because you, it, the the training and the planning is down to a T. Yeah. Every single day is exactly planned out. So, you know, I know for me being a high-performance athlete, it's all about being 
you know, kind of a creature of routine. Like, like just you, you get in that flow state and everything's the same. And so it, it really is a, a time to test your mental toughness. It's time to work on, you know, being adaptable and, you know, you know all those X factors. And so it, it really is. I feel for those athletes. I, I am one of those athletes. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, it's, it's hard to train with that same level of intensity when you don't know what's going on and you don't know when your next game's going to be. And so it, it really is a, a mental test right now more than anything for, the, for those athletes. I believe you too. So Greg, it's great to have you on board. Thank you so much for joining us. And I'm just going to repeat the Hockey Canada website. Uh, I'll be doing it a number <laughs> of times. That. Well, it's hockeycanada.ca. It's pretty simple. And again, these are Canadian families impacted by COVID-19 can apply now for registration fee subsidies. The whole point here is that Hockey Canada doesn't want Canadian kids not playing this season because they can't afford to. Greg and Jerome and Marie-Philippe and the entire organization dedicated to getting those kids fees paid and get out there and have some fun. Greg, thanks. Oh, thank you. That was awesome. I appreciate it very much. Greg Westlake joining us from Oakville, Ontario, where he is still training for the next Paralympics coming up in a few years. The Hockey Canada Foundation has launched a new $1 million assist fund to provide registration fee subsidies for qualified Canadians who are registered with Hockey Canada sanctioned organizations for the 2020-21 season. The uh, uh, fund allows Canadians who meet the criteria and need a financial hockey assist to apply for up to $500 in registration fee reimbursements per player, provided the registration is with a Hockey Canada sanctioned organization. We met uh, Greg Westlake a few moments ago, one of the ambassadors of this Canada Return to Hockey Fund from Hockey Canada. One of the other ambassadors joins us now. She is Marie-Philippe Poulain, who is the captain of Canada's national women's team, a two-time Olympic gold medalist, and Marie-Philippe one of those times was right here here in Vancouver in front of a room full of, uh, shall we say, screaming fans at the very least. Good morning and welcome. Good morning. How are you? I am well, thank you. It's good to have you with us. And this fund, we just talked to Greg Westlake about some of the, the fundamentals of the fund, the reasons for and, and all of that sort of thing. It's a fantastic idea, and it's good to see Hockey Canada becoming involved. Marie-Philippe, I wanted to zoom in particularly with you on young women hockey players. What percentage of all hockey players across Canada right now are women and girls? Well, I said I don't have the the right the perfect number, but obviously it's growing. I think year after year you can see more little girls wanting to play hockey and can see across Canada. So obviously with this fun, having a little boy, little girl at home, I think being able to to sustain and help them to be able to play hockey. I think uh, you know hockey brings a lot of joy for the kids, and having that uh, fun is huge. I think you can uh, tell that people have been. Uh, doing uh, their work and have been uh, going on Hockey Canada. Sure. But obviously, obviously we need uh, even more people to give out right now. Two-thirds have been already given. So if we want to help more people, uh, feel free to join and help even more. Indeed. So let's talk a little bit about uh, the the, uh, organizations, because just even since you began playing hockey, uh, the the number of leagues for girls across Canada has increased phenomenally. There weren't very many, Marie-Philippe, when you were a little kid compared to what's available for young girls today. Yeah, for sure. It's been growing and uh, we still want even more growth in that sense and having more league and having more support. And even for us right now, 
we're still struggling having a league. So uh, we, we obviously at a young age, you want more uh, league and having that sustainable league for the young girls to keep playing and mm-hmm. not being done right after college. Obviously, right now we're trying to build that after college life when you can actually dream to be play pro and have that as a as a, as a job. Now, we, we, we know that uh, there has been a considerable amount of energy uh, devoted to forming a women's professional hockey league. Uh, the NHL has been sympathetic to the idea, uh, and we know that there are uh, semi-pro women's leagues already, Marie-Philippe. Uh, was this to have been a normal year? Let's put COVID aside for a moment. Would there have been a possible professional women's league under normal circumstances this season or was it more likely to happen next year uh most likely uh, next year or even after the next olympics obviously um being able to be uh with the nhl uh, going to the all-star weekend and having that kind of a positive vibe right after mm-hmm. but sadly like you mentioned the covid uh, happened so it put things a little bit on the back burner a little bit a little setback there but obviously we really believe in a product we believe in what we have and we want to have that sustainable viable league that one day uh, we can be able to to make that our job and we're not asking millions like the guys who just want to have resources and having a um, amount of money that we can actually live of are, are you somewhat comfortable, Marie-Philippe, with the fact that this could be a thing? It could, be, could become a real thing while you're still of playing age? Uh, we really hope so. Obviously, we we build, we build would want to build that for next generation. But if we can have something even quicker for, for all of us uh, fighting for that right now, it would be uh, quite awesome. But uh, like I said, we, we believe in what we have and we hope uh, one day uh, we're going to have kind of a, a league like the, the WNBA has with the NBA. Absolutely. That's, that's a good example, too. And, of course, Canadians just love the rivalry. The Canada-U.S. women's hockey games, Marie-Philippe, <laughs> they're, they're very, very popular and they're not at all uh, gentle, <laughs> which is why they're so much fun to watch. Uh, what is the women's team doing now because of COVID? I know there's been a lot of Zoom but what? Uh, where are you at these days in terms of keeping the team together and focused going forward? Uh, obviously, like, we, we're trying to work out and train our own a little bit in our hubs, Montreal, Toronto, Calgary. A lot of the girls are, are based there. So mm-hmm. we're just trying to do our work here individually. And uh, obviously, like you mentioned, the Zoom call, that's something that we, we've done uh, bi-weekly, uh, being able to keep in touch and see uh, what's going on around. But just uh, keep in touch, and obviously right now we usually have a September camp that's been a little bit pushed back, so hopefully January comes around and we'll be able to, to see each other in Calgary and have our, our camp that usually starts the, the beginning of our season. So that would be, uh, so there's still plans, all things being equal, to get together early in 2021 with the women's team at their annual training camp and sort of take it from there. That's the plan, right? Exactly. Obviously, we we still don't know. We're, we're trying to focusing uh, day by day, but that's what we hope. That's what we train for to to see where we at. Well, as you know, and uh, certainly moms and dads listening to us right now know, hockey ain't cheap, Marie Philippe, and uh, it's it's a sport that so many Canadians love so much. Uh, and anything that it can be done during times of financial stress to allow parents and their children to get out there and and do the 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 athletics and and mix it up and socialize and and be physically active, uh, all just very positive things during some pretty stressful times. 
Exactly. I think uh, all of us mentally, physically, to be able to keep the ki- the kids active and obviously get, getting them outside and obviously having hockey a little bit on pause right now. Uh, it's kind of sad, but having Hockey Canada really being proactive, helping those families, being able to, to help them out in, in that sense, I think it's huge. But just trying to help the kids. I think obviously we were lucky enough that this summer, even with the, my our camps here in Montreal, having the kids back on the ice and seeing them finally having that smile and doing what they love the most and just uh, have, being there and being able to support them is huge. Interesting. Marie-Philippe, we're grateful for your time this morning. You're the captain of the national women's team. Lots of young girls write you and email you and text you for advice. Typically, what do you tell a young girl in Canada who wants to be you? I think to just be themselves and having fun. I think uh, when I talk a little bit about my career, I started playing hockey for the love of it. And even today, 29 years old, I still getting to the rink and enjoying having a smile on my face. So just uh, enjoying what you do and loving what, what you're passionate with. It's something that, that goes a long way. And just always like <laughs> having uh, doing your hard work. And I think it's going to be huge in the long run. Stay focused and work hard. Marie-Philippe Poulain, thanks very much for this. It's a pleasure to have you on the program, and we wish you and the national team considerable success going forward. We'll be cheering for you. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Richard Zussman joins us from Victoria. Of course, Richard is Global's BC's legislative reporter and a big player last night in Decision BC, which saw the election nobody wanted uh, come out the way the person who called it exactly wanted it. Richard, good morning. Yeah, I can tell you Sterling, one person who wanted that election, and that was John Morgan. No kidding. (laughs) And as you mentioned, it turned out okay for him uh, and his team as he's coming back uh, to Victoria with a big, huge uh, majority government. When he called the election and there was much grumbling and grousing, was it a foregone conclusion amongst the media guys that you hang with in Victoria that (laughs) all things being equal, this will turn into a majority? Yeah, and I think less so what the political chattering class were saying and more so what we saw in the polls. And John Horgan had proven through the pandemic effective leadership. And every single time when British Columbians were asked how they felt about John Horgan, it was overwhelming that people believed he had done a good job. We saw in those ratings that get done uh, every few months in terms of the most popular premier, Horgan had moved from fourth up to first in the midst of a pandemic. And every leader in the province was dealing with a pandemic. And seemingly people here reacted the most favorably to the work that he had done. So I think the understanding was that, you know, this was going to be a majority. That's why there was advice given to Horgan. And and he looked at what was happening with COVID and said, well, if I wait till later in the year or next year or even uh, fall of 2021, we're just delaying the inevitable and things could be worse then. And so now it's out of the way. Now he has this very, very clear mandate and the NDP will be able to pass all the policies at once as it starts gearing towards, you know, not just managing the pandemic, but also uh, the economic recovery out of it. Interesting stuff. And of course, now the uh, uh, critics would say that they already had a pretty effective management program lined up with that uh, confidence agreement uh, with the Greens. uh, And they were fully backed by the Greens in all of the management decisions that have been taken since COVID descended upon us, Richard. And you're quite right. Uh, BC uh, really gets excellent marks when you look at the pan Canadian picture. Uh, the BC management program, uh, Dr. Henry 
and, and Mr. Horgan and, and, and so on, we get it top marks. But one of the reasons that the management gets top marks is because the government has was and has been efficient in its management. And that came as a result of strong cooperation from the yeah. Greens. So the Greens, uh, Mr. Weaver leaves, they get a brand new leader whom no one really knows. And the premier, I would think, saw that as a really good moment to uh, to to go to the people uh, before the people had a chance to know who first to know really is. And one person that knew who first to know was was John Horgan. Yes, right? he's worked with her a lot, and he knew how impressive she is. And British Columbians learned that during the campaign. And you just see, you know, what unfolded, and the Greens were able to pick up a seat for the first time off Vancouver Island. It looks like in West Vancouver Sea to Sky. Right. You know, it's always important to mention we have. 600,000 ballots that haven't been counted yet. They will be counted in a few weeks' time, these mail-in and absentee ballots. Right. Uh, and there could be some seats moving around. But I think Horgan knew that if you give Sonia First No a lot of lead time to get to know British Columbians, people are going to be impressed by her. And that was no doubt part of the calculation for the NDP to go uh, to this early election. But it doesn't mean there can't be cooperation now in the legislature towards COVID-19, especially when it comes to the health side. Right. Norm Letnick, the liberal critic, has won re-election in Kelowna. He will go back and continue to work with Adrian Dick. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the Greens will continue to work uh, with the government around COVID health response. But it's about those political decisions that have to be made around recovery. You know, every part of our economy and our province has been hit hard by COVID. And decisions have to be made. Where is the money going to go? Where will the time be focused? And one of the crucial decisions, Sterling, I'm looking at is who will be in this cabinet? And what will cabinet look like to make those decisions? A lot of key positions are empty because of retirements, especially finance with Carol James. Right. And there's a lot of really impressive people who have now been elected who are going to come into this caucus and could help uh, Horgan's team out very well in cabinet. So he'll make those decisions over the next few weeks. Nothing can be done until the final results of this election are known, which is going to be in about you know two weeks, three weeks time. And then once we have that, we're going to start seeing how Horgan wants to put his own spin on this government and what that looks like. You know, Murray Rankin is a name you should mm-hmm. get familiar with from Victoria, Nathan Cullen, uh, Josie Osborne, Brenda Bailey. These are all people who are just recently or just elected for the first time last night or on the way to being elected. We'll see what happens with the Malins. But, you know, these are people who could help really bolster what was in many regards a very strong team. And if people are wondering, Adrian Dix, almost 100 percent all in will stay as the health minister, because it's just such a crucial portfolio and you don't want be wanting to make a change in that regard right now because of how close his relationship is with Dr. Henry. Absolutely. If there's one department begging for consistency at this point, <laughs> it's the health ministry. November 13th is a date that I've circled in my mind. Yep, is, that, is that the final date by which all tallies must be presented? No, no. That is when the final tallies it's seemingly there could be some wiggle room so we know uh that by 13 days from now they will start potentially counting but that could be delayed and then by law uh, it needs to be done by the 13th as you mentioned but that can be adjusted for unforeseen circumstances so it is an important date to circle I think that's going to be the goal, but 
you know, we've never seen this many ballots. And, and one of the, there's just a lot of logistical issues here. And one of them is they're going to need to assess all these ballots. And it's about getting staffing, but it's also about finding rooms where people can physically distance sure. while also doing this. And that's very different. In the past, if you've ever been in one of these ballot counting rooms, everyone's all sitting at a table right beside each other. Yep. They take the ballot, they pass it to the next person, they look at it, they pass it on, they count it. Mm-hmm. Um, this situation where people are spread out, it's just going to take a little bit more time. And it's just going to, you're just going to have to sort of figure it out. So that's the goal to get it done by, you know, mid-November, a little bit earlier, but there could be potential delays to that uh, based on how things go over the next few weeks. Absolutely. And of course, there's the fate of Andrew Wilkinson still to take a look at. Richard Zussman joining us from Victoria this morning. Our series on the arts continues. We've been doing this now for several weeks, just popping in around town to various community arts centers and seeing how everyone's doing having you know this covid business going on and well uh, the ability to perform to full houses uh, a distant memory and today we're in burnaby and you're joined on the line by cory philly she is the uh, event coordinator at the shed bolt center for the arts cory good morning welcome good good morning how are you today well i'm just great thanks the shed bolt center for the arts gets called the bolt a lot by yeah. people who, <laughs> who, who work there but tell us about deer lake what's going on out there because there's the there's the art gallery and there's the performance uh, aspect to it all. So give us an update on what's happening in Burnaby. Sure, thanks. Uh, well, the Shabble Center for the Arts is in the center of what we like to call the cultural district, essentially. There's the Burnaby Village Museum, which is the uh, Heritage Museum uh, that usually runs open, as you can imagine, uh, for uh, free admission into the museum, which happened a bit this summer. Um, you know, obviously on the 50-people-only thing for a while. Uh, we also have the Burnaby Art Gallery, which is open and accepting people to come in through reservation. Okay. And we have and we have the Shadbolt Center for the Arts, which does a series. Uh, it's a kind of a three-pronged um, or three-headed monster, if that's quite not the right word, but uh, which has educational programs from anybody from 4 to 80 and beyond, and we have a senior program, and we also have production programs. So all of those things, um, uh, sorry, uh, event programs that happen generally. So we're all kind of trying to adapt to how this is all supposed to be now, and it keeps on changing, as you know. <laughs> Indeed it has. Now, as far as being able to stay afloat during all of this, we've been uh, fortunate when we've been speaking to people in your position, Corey, and other community theater and uh, uh, art centers. Uh, they are just incredibly grateful to their sponsors uh, for sticking with them and uh, for or the cities and communities that they serve for sticking with them and maintaining funding for at least uh, the minimal peer, uh, levels of activity. Is it the same in Burnaby? Thank goodness it is. Yeah, the city has committed to uh, working through this with us. I mean, with the programs area, which is mostly the educational programs area, they have been really fortunate. People have returned in a very obviously COVIDified way, as I say, with, uh, you know, um, uh, more spaced out programs, sure. less people, all that stuff. In the theater, uh, we were waiting to hear because, you know, it's a harder thing in terms of revenue for us. We're not going to make revenue. Those budgets that were of two years ago when we made them are well gone. Now. Oh, sure. Um, past that, right? So, yep. But the city has committed to actually the artists and the people who work at the city who are in, you know, positions of being technicians and production staff and box office and all that to actually bring back a modified uh, uh, theater season, uh, now live streaming season, 
without the expectation that we're going to hit those kind of revenue marks. That we're well, of course. For. So it's been it's been really heartening. And we've actually just got word that the city is going to continue that into 2021, which, you know, is so great for my staff who were laid off for a few months while all this was being sorted out. Indeed. So, Corey, let's talk a little bit about the jazz series you've got going on. Here. Talking to a big <laughs> jazz fan here. So you have my undivided uh, attention. Tell us about Sunday Night Jazz. Oh, it's going to be so great. Uh, I don't know if you know Corey Weed, so the, uh, of the old seller when it was down off of Broadway. Right, yep. Uh, Corey's also worked with uh, the, the International Jazz Festival, and we've been working with Corey for, um, I'm going to say, five years now. He does a weekly jazz jam, or did a weekly jazz jam at the Shotbolt, where he would just bring a, you know his stellar group of uh, local musicians, and then he would have people come into the space, and they would sign up and be able to do a song with them in whatever instrument or if they sang. Um, and we did, we've done that for about five years, as well as Corey has also been... Um, you know, had different shows that we have partnered with him. And this one is really exciting. All the way through November, from November 1st to November 29th, I think is the last one, um, every Sunday at 7 p.m., Corey is in, with a different group of humans um, doing a jazz series at the Shadbolt where we're going to live stream. And it's a partnership with the Shadbolt, with the Italian Cultural Center, and with the Yukon Art Center, with who we've never worked with before. So uh-huh. we're very excited about it. Yeah, now, very cool. Well, these performances that you're going to stream, will they feature any humans in the room, or is this strictly, at this point, a streaming exercise? <laughs> No, you know what we we have small theaters, so you know it's only fifty if you can social distance appropriately, exactly, right? Exactly, right, right. But we've only had like twenty to twenty four in the smaller studio theater, which is our black box jewel that we have, and so we're getting twenty human beings <laughs> socially distanced in the theater as well as live streaming. So we've been doing that in our regular other uh, stories, live streaming performances, which began October 1st and are running every Thursday night until the end of November. In that room, Corey, where you're currently putting 20 people, yes. uh, what's, uh-huh. what, what, is the, what is the capacity, the seating capacity of that venue? Usually it's 165. Okay, but you know what? For the performers up on stage who have been kind of cooped up like the rest of us for a very long time, playing to 20 people is going to feel like playing to 20,000 people simply because they haven't played to anybody for a really long time. Everybody's so up for performing. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They are so excited about being there. And let me tell you, I have worked uh, in the performing arts for long periods of time, and, and I'm usually like the host for the evening, so I get up there and, and talk about the performers and introduce them. And I cannot tell you the uh, excitement I felt when we first started doing this a month ago, where all I could think of was, I cannot believe that I am standing in front of people. The energy, mm-hmm. just the energy, I, it's so exciting. And the performers have been honestly just giddy about being back in a space and uh, performing to live audience, any kind of live audience. Uh, but uh, they've been very hardy, the 20 that have showed up for each of the performances. So. Absolutely. What about demand? On the demand side, you've only got 20 seats. Obviously, it wouldn't be very yeah. hard to fill them. So uh, uh, how are you accommodating? Uh, people are just, oh, just dying to go out somewhere and enjoy live music, especially in a nice venue with great performers. So uh, you announce anything, and I'm sure you're just overwhelmed in a matter of minutes. Well, definitely for the live performance ones, we've just seen such an uptake. We've, we've been trying to um, figure out, you know, how we can get more people in there, uh, you know, obviously safely. But, you know, if you're in your own pod, 
uh, if you have like four people in your pod in your little bubble, then we the you more can sit we together. can get in. Sure. Yeah, of course, right? So if you're sitting at a table and there's, you know, that actually helps a lot, of course, because the more people who actually come in and manage that and we can manage that for uh, fours or fives or whatever at a table, then the more that we can put into a space because we can socially distance appropriately. Perfect. Now, uh, just a quick reminder about the art gallery. You've mentioned it already, that it is yeah. open, uh, and as is the case with the Vancouver Art Gallery and many other venues around the city, the only difference now is if you want to go to the art gallery at Deer Lake, you need to make a reservation online in advance. There are no walk-ups, right? No walk-ups, that's correct. We, we are doing that, in fact, at every... Uh, City facility, but certainly at the Shadbolt, if you are coming into the building, you either are a registered program participant, mm-hmm. or you're going to see a show, or you're here to have a meeting. And because we want to make sure that we have contact tracing for everybody, of course, and just keep everybody on the same page about safety protocols uh, for this very challenging times that we're in right now. Indeed. So ShadboltCenter.com would be the place to go to get all the rest of the details, right, Corey? It would indeed. Thank you very much for mentioning that. (laughs) It's no problem at all. And thank you for taking a few moments to be with us and uh, get us up to speed on what's happening in the Burnaby Arts Centre. We wish you continued success. Thank you very much, and thank you very much for having me on today. It was really a pleasure to speak with you. Great stuff. Corey Philly at uh, the Shadbolt Centre in Burnaby. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think French fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.